marketing podcast from Said Business School, Oxford University, and Kantar, the data insights and consulting company. In each episode, we speak to industry leaders about the big issues in marketing, sharing evidence and inspiration for the future. I'm Andrew Stephen, the L'Oreal Professor of Marketing and... Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Associate Dean of Research at the Said Business School. On today's podcast, we're going to be talking about gender equality and and gender stereotypes and specifically the Gender Equality Attitude Study, which has been done between the United Nations and specifically UN Women and Kantar. And so I'm joined by Dan Seymour, who's the Director of Strategic Partnerships at UN Women, which is the UN Entity for Gender Equality and Empowerment of Women, and Rosie Hawkins, who's the Chief Offer and Innovation Officer at Kantar's Insights Division. Welcome, both of you. Before we dive into to hearing more about the Gender Equality Attitudes Study, perhaps, Dan, you could start us off by just telling everyone about UN Women and, and the Unstereotype Alliance, because perhaps not everyone listening is familiar with, with the work you all do. No problem, and thanks, Andrew. Thanks, everybody, for the, the opportunity to talk about this, because you know, this is something we're pretty passionate about. For those who don't know, and I think it's it's pretty reasonable that they that not everybody does, UN Women is the newest and youngest part of the UN system. We were established in 2010. And we were established because a lot of civil society actors and a lot of governments and also the then Secretary General Ban Ki-moon and others felt that the UN wasn't really pulling its weight or doing the job it needed to be doing in promoting uh, gender equality around the world. And that's a big part of the job of the United Nations, it's in the UN Charter, in various international instruments and so on. So we were set up in 2010 to try and get that right for the UN system and then through the UN. Of course, our job is through the, the governments of the world and other, other partners in the private sector and, and, and everywhere. And the only other thing that I would just flag about UN Women that's, that's kind of, you know, I think it's interesting and, and others might do, you know, we weren't set up in the 1950s, right? And we weren't 
also around in the 70s, 80s, early 90s, when the really, really big sort of UN operations, particularly after colonial powers left, left countries, uh, you know, were going on. So we've never had this sort of, you know, UN women Land Rovers driving around or UN women planes dropping pallets of supplies out the back. We are really about partnership. We're about influence. We're about advocacy. We're about talking to people about doing things together and doing things differently. So we're small. We like to think we're uh, agile and uh, very cost effective, but we're not like the sort of the old UN entities, which have big, important operations. Our role is really to work with everybody as a coordinator, a convener, a catalyst to make gender equality happen. And that's very much the spirit of the Unstereotype Alliance. And it's, it's a brilliant example of what we were established to do. The marketing communications industry is incredibly powerful. It's also specifically designed to change people's minds. And one of our big jobs uh, as you and women, but everybody who believes in gender equality is to try and change minds. And so the Unstereotype Alliance was set up to bring together big actors in the marketing and communications community and industry to see what we could do together differently and better, not only just not to do harm. So it's not just about killing those ads that really reinforce negative gender stereotypes. It's also about doing good things and, and things like this uh, study we're going to talk about that wouldn't happen if that constituency didn't come together with all its capacities, all its power and, uh, and influence to make something happen. So that's uh, the Unstereotype Alliance was formed at the Cannes Festival in, in 2017. It had 27 members to start off with. Uh, today, we're now, I think, over 120. We have national chapters in a number of countries around the world, Turkey, Brazil, Japan. We've got uh, new ones coming in other markets soon. So it's a really, really good example of the power of bringing people together, working for uh, gender equality around the world. And, and as I say, that's basically our job as UN Women. And Rosie, before we dive into talking about the study, what's Kantar's involvement in the Unstereotype Alliance? So we work with many of the partners that are, uh, that are involved in the Unstereotype Alliance. And over the last few years in particular, we have worked with the Unstereotype Alliance on a number of pieces of work around gender equality. So things like getting gender right, winning with women, and looking at the role that we can play as insights providers in reflecting really the consumer experience and reflecting that back to our clients so that they can take that guidance and build it into you know the strategies that they're developing around brands the content that they're developing around advertising and communications so we work closely with a number of different partners and we have been a partner with UN Women and Unstereotype Alliance as well particularly through this program. So let's talk about the study. Dan tell us to start with what the Gender Equality Attitudes or GEA study is seeking to do. One of the big things that we need to change if we're going to move the needle on gender equality is the very sexist, counterproductive, negative attitudes that a lot of us uh, are carrying around in our heads. And we don't necessarily even uh, have full awareness of them. You know, we're brought up with very, very powerful ideas about the difference between uh, male and female, masculine and feminine, uh, boys and girls, uh, women and men. So, you know, we need to change that. And actually, when the, the world came together in 1995, 
for the Beijing conference, which to date has been the world's biggest convening around this challenge of gender equality. And that group of people, um, you know, presidents, prime ministers and grassroots activists, everyone produced a, a manifesto, if you like, the Beijing Platform for Action, which laid out a blueprint for trying to achieve gender equality. And one of those areas did relate to attitudes uh, and behaviors. Now, 25 years later, as we've taken a look and figured out what's gone well and what hasn't gone so well since 95, it is striking that we kind of defaulted to the things that many of us in this line of work know best, which is you know, working with governments on changing laws, training police forces, looking at the way that budgets are distributed and things like that, which are you know, kind of what we normally do, you know. Whereas looking at attitudes and beliefs and, and how you change them, we've not really done a lot of that. And it is very, very striking to me that if you look over the last 25 years and you try and figure out in the UN system how much has been invested in getting people to remember to wash their hands after they go to the toilet versus how much has been invested on getting people not to think that they should prioritize their boys over their girls for going to school, it's kind of unbalanced, right? So we know we need to do much better at this. Now, anything you take seriously and you want to do better on, as you know, uh, Andrew, that the step one is measuring it, right? So you can't change anything that you don't have the parameters of and a good grip on. And in addition, obviously, you can't justify any investment or whether it's of money or of energy if you can't see whether a needle is moving. So the ability to measure what's happening with attitudes and behaviors is really, really key. And we've tried various things before to do this, but they've had limitation, let's say. And so the study actually, you know, I think what's kind of revolutionary about the study, if you like, is it's actually recognizing that the structures and the tools that the marketing communications industry uses to see what people think and to figure out whether it's changing are actually structures and practices, capacities, tools that we can use for that same job in gender equality. So the, the study, it, you know, it started off as a pilot with the 10 countries. We're now at 20 countries. We want to keep it growing. But the the ambition of the study is that it becomes the benchmark for people to figure out where we are on trying to get to a world where people's attitudes and beliefs are not discriminatory. In fact, to the contrary, they are progressive and positive and that we're all believers in gender equality and also believers in our own role uh, in achieving it. And that being a sort of a pillar, a foundation of achieving actual, real, substantive equality in the world. That's what the study's for. And so, Rosie, can you tell us a bit about methodology? So we collect data by interviewing men and women across the, the 10 countries, and we're just in field at the moment for the, the second wave. These are telephone interviews or online interviews, and we use a very structured interview so that we can compare data across respondents, across countries, and then, of course, we'll be able to do so over time as we complete field work for this year. And in analysing the data, we've worked very closely with UN Women Research and Data Team. So we're drawing on their technical expertise, we're drawing on their knowledge of the subject matter. And then we've been able to bring through Kantar our experts in gender studies, as well as the knowledge and experience that we have from all of these different markets. So it's a diverse and multidisciplinary team that we're bringing to this very important topic. And the ability to cover so many countries is, is really powerful because we do know that cultural values play a role in attitudes towards gender. And so we see country differences in the 10 pilot markets by adding another 10 countries in our 2020 stage. We're going to have a really rich understanding of just the, the nuanced 
uh, understanding of gender and attitudes towards gender equality at the moment. And if I understand correctly, the, the idea is that this will be done, I think you just said wave two is in, in the field at the moment. So you'll eventually have some some longitudinal data here to, to look at also, I guess, how, how different interventions and, and policies and even just communications campaigns, I guess, have impacted, hopefully, positive change in, in attitudes over time. I guess too early to, to get there, but that, that would be the hope, I suppose. That's the intention. So yes, we've repeated the, or we are repeating the 10 pilot countries. So we will have some longitudinal data. Um, We've got very early glimpse just from a couple of markets. But as you can appreciate, the field work is being impacted by COVID-19 this year. So it's taking us a little bit longer to get around all the countries. Before we talk about, because I'm very curious to hear what some of the main findings are so far, but but Dan, I, I really liked your point about, you know, if we want to make a positive difference in terms of gender equality in the world, we really do have to understand what those attitudes are around the world. Can you give us some examples of the specific attitudes being looked at in this research work? The first executive director of UN Women said that when it comes to gender equality, there's only really three broad things that matter. One is equality in the economic sphere. And the survey looks at questions like what women and men think or people in general think about uh, women in the world of work. Uh, What do they think about pay? What do they think about impact on working when there's a child in the family and so on, on the potential impacts on the child and so on. So all of the attitudes that may promote or impede women's equal access to the benefits of the world of work. The second thing she always identified was equality in the area of, of voice and political representation. So the study looks at questions about what people think about women's leadership, how ready they are to vote for women leaders and, and so on. The third big area, as she said, was, was safety. If women are not safe, then that undermines any uh, equality in the worlds of work and, and politics. So we look at attitudes around violence and safety. And so there's really a range of, of questions that, that are picking up in those three spheres and also you know, related areas what people think in terms of those really big, real determinants of the kind of life that women and men lead and the, and the differences that are driven by attitudes and beliefs. So let's talk about the, the main findings, uh, Rosie. One of the interesting tensions, I think, that immediately jumps out from the data is that at an overall level, we do see a strong belief in gender equality. So we see consensus that gender equality is essential um, for society. So just to put some numbers around that, across the 10 countries, 91% of people believe that respect for women's rights in all areas is important to a country's success. And that's as high as 97% in the United Arab Emirates, in Colombia and in the Philippines. And the lowest score across the 10 countries, uh, which still represents three quarters of people, is in Japan at 78%. So we get this very strong consensus that gender equality is important, and that should give us hope. But it's why these studies and a study of this nature is so important, because as we dig into some of those specific question areas, we do see a different story emerging and we see some of those underlying perceptions and those hidden biases emerging. Let me give you an example using equal pay, which is one of those key areas that Dan just mentioned. If we think about equal pay at an overall level, 91% of people believe in equal pay for equal work. But again, when we ask the more specific question, we discover that a third of men agree that women should be paid less for the same work. 
And so, as I say, a really good example of why this sort of information is so important, because we need to have a vehicle that uncovers some of those underlying biases. And although we look across a number of different areas, we see greater discrimination in some areas or themes, as we call them, than in others. So to give you an example, healthcare and education we see less gender discrimination in those two areas. So the level of basic healthcare reported does vary across country, but access to healthcare doesn't vary as much by gender. So access to healthcare is more of an economic issue. So it tends to be more difficult in lower income economies rather than it being something that's influenced by gender. And we see a similar picture on education where it's income level that has a greater influence on access to education than gender. There are some country differences there. So in India, for example, it is harder, what's perceived to be harder for women to get a quality education. So healthcare and education, we see less discrimination. Where we really start to see gender playing a role is in various aspects of control. So equality in the economic sphere, um, as Dan described before, and people not having women, not having as much control over their finances, for example, not having so much control over their lives in general. And we see that coming through in areas of safety as well. A number of the things that I've touched on probably won't be terribly surprising. They're, They're uncomfortable to hear, but they're perhaps not terribly surprising. I think one of the things that really stood out to me in the data and is important to point out is that these beliefs are held amongst women as well as amongst men. So it's tempting to always think of this as being a problem with men, but actually these negative stereotypes and these biases exist in women as well. And so from an education perspective, from a policy perspective, we have to think about educating and supporting both men and women through this process. Domestic violence is a good example of this. While domestic violence is not considered acceptable to the majority of women and men, and it's important to point that out, and we know that women are still at higher risk of suffering from domestic violence, one in four men believe that it's acceptable for someone to hit their spouse or partner one in five women also believe that it's acceptable for someone to hit their spouse and partner. So you get that understanding, again, by looking at attitudes amongst both men and women, you get that sense of the magnitude of some of these issues. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. 
and the work that needs to be done to educate and address some of these really quite harmful beliefs. You mentioned that quite a lot of the findings were, you know, not entirely unsurprising, but I, I'm certain that there must be findings across this wealth of data that you've collected that were actually more surprising, maybe just perhaps more varied across countries. Dan, from your perspective, what are you all starting to, to see here that uh, has perhaps even changed what you all in UN Women have been thinking about these attitudes? Look, our, our day job is, is gender equality, and we have, you know, 90 offices around the world, and we deal with a lot of countries. So, to be honest with you, I, I would say there was not a, a, a lot data-wise that we looked at and thought, "Wow, that's a you know that's a surprise," because this is what we you know what we live the whole time. Actually, the, probably the most surprising thing, and it probably says more about us than uh, than anything, is that the the very high level, uh, as, as Rosie was referring to, the very high level of support among respondents across all of the ten markets for the concept of gender equality and the belief that a society, a gender equal society is a better society, that sort of was kind of higher than we would have anticipated. And I guess that's probably because we spend our time trying to convince people of the importance of gender equality and its values. So we probably see the, the negative a bit more quickly. What's enormously valuable for us is, of course, there's, there's an enormous difference in our job of going around to convince people to take things up and to, to work with us, I guess, on changing things from us just saying something's bad versus actually having a hard number to put on the table. So as Rosie knows, obviously this year we didn't we didn't all go to Cannes, but the year before we did, and the sharing of data from the first wave that we were able to do um, was absolutely invaluable in terms of getting people to understand just the, the magnitude of, of what we're dealing with and its importance. So, you know, I, I think there are a lot of people there who, for example, hear the kind of uh, figures that Rose is sharing, for example, about how high the level of people who think hitting a spouse is, is acceptable, how high that number is, and, you know, who, who are quite passionate about, they believe very strongly that, that people shouldn't be subjected to violence. But as marketeers and people in this space, um, seeing that data and that number, it really drives home to them that actually in the job that they have and what they do for a living day to day, they actually have the opportunity to contribute to addressing what is an enormously powerful part of the problem, a big driver of um, you know people getting beaten up and hurt and experiencing violence. So the figures, it was less for us that it surprised us with that with that one exception I, I referenced. It's more that we were given a tool that we hadn't really had before that allowed us to speak to people and you know to marketeers, but but to others as well more powerfully than we'd been able to do before. So let's think about what's been happening in the world in in the basically all of this year, almost all of this year so far in, in terms of COVID nineteen. You know, there's big impacts of COVID-19 on all sorts of things, but but let's think about that within the, the gender equality space. Rosie, I know that Kantar's been collecting data with your COVID-19 barometer. What are we learning from that in relation to what we've just been talking about with uh, equality? So we are seeing that women are shouldering a lot more of the burden day to day of COVID-19 and, and really are picking up some of the slack. In the Kantar COVID-19 barometer, we see that coming through in things like their anxiety levels. So they are generally more anxious about the virus, whether that's about contracting it themselves or their family. They're more anxious about the future. They're more anxious about the economy. And the data also unfortunately suggests that they are right to be concerned about it. Women are being disproportionately affected by COVID. 
We know from the gender equality attitude study that they are tending to be earning less, that women tend to earn less than men. They tend to be in unskilled work. And so their careers are often the first ones to be sidelined when more time or if more time needs to be devoted to childcare or to caring duties more generally. And and of course, that might be the right practical decision for a family to make at a particular point in time. But I think we have to understand that it's a consequence of some of these systemic biases of women not getting into skilled work as easily, women not being paid as much and women being expected to take the burden of childcare. So we see that cycle being perpetuated. And interestingly, one of the things that we asked in the gender equality attitude study in 2018 was who should take priority in times of scarcity. And the results skew to men in times of job scarcity. So if there are fewer jobs around, who takes priority? It's the men. And in times of food shortages, who should take priority? The response skews to women. And so what we see there is that in times of hardship, those traditional roles of man as breadwinner, man as provider, woman as carer, woman as housewife, those stereotypes very quickly emerge. And that's very much what we're already seeing in the context of of COVID-19. And we see people facing the financial impact. So the barometer data tells us that 53% of the global population is already feeling the impact of COVID-19 on their household budget. That's as high as 88% in Kenya, 80% in the Philippines, 76% in Nigeria. So a lot of people already feeling that hardship. And we know that particularly in markets like South Africa, we will see more and more people being pushed into poverty and more women in that population. So we know that women really are going to already are suffering as a result of COVID-19. And unfortunately, the prospects for them are likely to be worse. Maybe just to build a bit on what Rosie said, the, you know, the big issue for us has been kind of convincing people as they react that they need to do so in a way that's mindful and sensitive to the realities for women. So all the things that Rose is referring to, you know, need to be built into the response. So exactly as, as Rosie said, of course, you know, there, there are enormous economic impacts on you know, pretty much every country you, you look at. I haven't seen one yet where there aren't. And women tend to be in more insecure forms of labor. There's countries, for example, where tourism has been hit, hospitality and so on. And when we are talking with governments uh, and with businesses and others about what can be done to respond to this and talking with them about how that needs to be built into their stimulus package uh, or their social protection packages or measures they're taking to protect business, that looking at the different policy options they have and figuring out which ones are the best ones in terms of best serving the situation of women and girls. But when we're talking about that, of course, we come and, you know, we're saying, look, you know, on the whole, very few people have the, you know, the full data that they would normally have because it's a relatively short period of time. But what we can say is that going into March, we knew there were a bunch of things already there that were disadvantageous for women and girls. And we then have to factor that in in terms of how we respond. So again, in the economic sphere, it's fine. We have the you know labor force data, and that will inform the discussions that we have with policymakers as the United Nations. But to be able to add into that some of the attitudinal data allows us to understand the problem that we're trying to fix better 
and look at measures that can include, for example, um, providing resources to civil society actors that do run advocacy attitudinal change campaigns so that we tackle this kind of problem. Of course, the other big one, and and some of the people listening may have seen the shadow pandemic campaign, which we and our our partners ran. Of course, you know, we we know that domestic violence is is a problem. We have the data from the study, and it's been helpful, the data from the study, along with other things, to to raise the alarm that it was predictable that if you go into lockdown and you shut people in together, and if a quarter of the men in those scenarios think that hitting your spouse is okay, that you will expect a significant spike in cases of domestic violence. And that has helped us drive significant investments into helplines, into services for survivors, shelters, and so on. So again, this is a really important, the the data that we're getting from this uh, are a really important element of the overall uh, case we can make uh, for doing things differently and doing things better for women and girls. So I think to wrap it up, let's bring it back into, I guess, the industry that most of us are involved in, be it in, in marketing or advertising or research insights and communication. And, you know, because Dan, you talked a lot about the sort of practical and, and very useful, I think, implications of the research work for policymakers, civil society, and, and those sorts of people. But Rosie, what about in, I guess, our, our world of marketing and advertising and insights? So I think there are a couple of key areas that this really supports. One is around the use of negative stereotypes or harmful stereotypes in the advertising and in the media. And that's an important element of the Unstereotype Alliance and something that certainly from an insights perspective, we can be really focused on. And that's not just about the content that, that, that gets created. I think it's also about the process of creating that content. So when we develop insights, are we representing gender fairly in the work that we're doing from an insights perspective? When our clients and when the media agencies and the creative agencies take that learning, Are they bringing a diversity of opinion and thought and creativity to that process? So it's not just about the end result and what we deliver there. It's also about the process of getting to that end result and ensuring that we're listening to multiple voices throughout. And I think this is extremely important because the work that we have done in this space consistently shows that brands are more valuable if they appeal to women as well as men. And very importantly, around progressive gender portrayal, we see that progressive gender portrayal in advertising does create more effective advertising. So work like this enables us to focus on these initiatives to elevate the importance of them in the work that we do and the work that our clients do. And because we're able to bring multi-country perspective as well, it helps many of our multi-country clients to understand how they need to be thinking about landing different strategies or developing content in a way that is sufficiently nuanced for the cultural context in which it plays out. I can maybe sort of zoom out a little bit as well from what Rosie said. I think 
one of the takeaways from this exercise and it's and, and also sort of looking forward in terms of what this exercise maybe represents but also potentially inspires i've been um, working on the unstereotype alliance portfolios for about a year and a year and a half and you know i've met a lot of people in the industry who are passionate about the issue uh, of equality and you know there is absolutely no shortage in the industry of events on diversity and inclusion and even more so now so at least haven't come across anyone who doesn't believe that this is an important issue i think that the extent to which that's understood as an issue let's say you know sort of behind the lens or within workforces and the relative numbers of women and men you know in c-suite positions or in creative teams and so on I mean, that's, that's a really, really important discussion. But what the study really drives home is that if we are people who believe in equality, we have to appreciate just how large a piece of the picture attitudes and beliefs are. And when the study helps us to realize, appreciate, internalize that, then logically or inevitably, if, if we're working in this industry, we start to realize quite how much we could potentially contribute and I think a lot of people feel that if you can potentially contribute it, then you should be uh, contributing it because, you know, this is something that we believe in and think is important. And I've spoken with people who are you know, juniors in creative teams who get inspired and energized when they realize quite how much they can contribute because they understand how much attitudes, beliefs are central to the struggle. And I've spoken with CEOs uh, who are super passionate about it. So kind of everywhere we look, when we can really get people to understand the centrality of attitudes and beliefs to what we're trying to achieve and the potential contribution or influence of the industry in doing that, it's, it's very key. So, you know, I think some of the brands and the companies that are, are, are most all in through the Unstereotype Alliance have been willing to invest a lot of energy and time. And that's why for this study, we had AT&T, uh, Johnson & Johnson, uh, Procter & Gamble, Unilever, and of course, Kantar, all investing in making this study a reality because they are uh, big believers in, I guess, the responsibility of the industry. And to my mind, there's, there's just a whole lot more we can do. And there's a whole lot more, I, you know, I believe that we will do that is inspired by reflections or realizations, insights like this study. And, you know, we're already seeing it in terms of the advertising that goes out and the sorts of images that it reflects and represents, portrays. And I believe it does make a huge difference. So I guess the, the you know, the take home message for me from what we're discussing is that Really, everyone who understands the importance of an equal world, not just for gender, but in, in every respect, and everybody who understands how central to achieving that the, the issues of uh, attitudes and beliefs are, and everyone who understands that this marketing and communications search industry, how powerful it can be in achieving that, you, you come away, and I, I see people coming away, really, really committed to doing what they can do from wherever they sit. Um, because wherever you sit, there's something that you can do to contribute to this. This is a really, really significant piece of work. It's an important piece of work. It's one of a number of important pieces of work that really make a difference to individuals in the industry in terms of what they want to do with their time, their day, their career, and the meaning that it has to them. been listening to Future Proof. For all episodes and more information, visit Kantar.com or OxfordFutureOfMarketing.com. 
please leave us a rating and a review and subscribe within your podcast app so you know when new episodes are released. Thank you.